Welcome to Ergo. I'm Kiss. As we mentioned in the past, we've been working with the Chicago youth media nonprofit Free Spirit Media. And in their newsroom, The Real Shy, we've been developing a podcast. That podcast is called In the Loop, Out the Blue. You might remember we dropped the first episode back in April. And we're very excited to bring you the second episode today. There's some great conversations, some deep dives into the news that's been affecting us over the last month or so. And you get a feel for some of the brilliant young people in their newsroom. But before we get to that, a couple community announcements. First off, on Friday the 26th is a ballot party hosted by the Southside Weekly. If you are intimidated by all the things on your upcoming ballot that you don't know what the hell they mean, this is a great way to get a feel for every point on your ballot and feel prepared when you go into the voting booth. It is at Build Coffee from 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. You should be there and get informed. Also on the 26th, after that from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m., over at Lincoln Hall is Kwaku Collins' tour stop here in Chicago. His openers are Ergo alum Joseph Chilliams and friend of the show Christian Jalan. Make sure you grab tickets for that. And then on Saturday the 27th, Party Noir is back up at the Promontory at 3 p.m. This one is called Avant Black, and it's in collaboration with Vocalo. And then Saturday night, the next edition of the Hoodwazi. This one's on the politics of death. We have a death doula named Emmy Cologne. Uh, Jadel McPherson will be performing and our featured guest. And then your friend, good old Kiss, is one of the panelists. So make sure you come through. It's at Seat Laline Gallery in Pilsen. And then fast-forwarding a little bit on November 2nd, is Tasha's record release show with Yarrow and Jamila Woods and Kara Jackson and Jay Bambi. And that's a sleeping village over in Avondale on the second. Make sure you get tickets for that. That's all we got. Let's uh, let's turn it over to the real shy. Here's In the Loop at the Blue, episode two. Enjoy. I'm Maya J. Horton. This is Brianna Madden. I'm Pat Tabong. I'm Ebony Ellis. I'm Jenny Shu. I'm Julia Monshin. I'm Trevor Squire. I'm Kristen Simmons. I'm Sam Kelly. I'm Amanda Tagati. I'm Pascal Savino. I'm Chelsea Berry. We are The Real Shy, in the loop, out the blue. The Real Shy is a podcast reclaiming community journalism on both Chicago's west and south sides. We are reporting people over institutions. The Real Shy is a project on the free spirit media. Take a ride with us, The Real Shy. Next stop, headlines. Doors closing. Chicago and Franklin is next. This stop is Headlines. Hey everyone, I'm Trevor. And I'm Julia. And this past month, the news cycle has been insane. Yep. Everyone seems very exhausted from what we've been through. People of color, uh, women, and I'm sure conservatives are even tired of having to excuse sexual assault. It's so hard. And I know the Fraternal Order of Police are also losing their shit over Van Dyke convictions. Yeah, honestly, every time I, you know, turn on my phone and look at the news, I am bracing myself. I'm physically tense because I'm just waiting for some other horrible bombshell to drop. Um, So let's start with, you know, the arguably less horrible news. Yeah, let's get to it. Uh, So in the first week of October, Jason Van Dyke was convicted on second degree murder charges and 16 counts of aggravated assault and the murder of Laquan McDonald. He was a 17 year old black boy who was shot by Van Dyke a white officer, nearly four years ago. Yeah, four years ago, and the trial lasted about a month, with jury selection beginning on the 5th of September. Outside the court that day, about 100 organizers or so held a rally to convict Van Dyke, strategically surrounding the path of potential jurors entering the building. 
Maya Horton and I were on the scene that day, and let's take a look back at how people were feeling as the trial began. We're out here today on the first day of the Jason Van Dyke trial to demand justice for Laquan. This is the movement that emerged after the release of the videotape. Um, and since then, we've been applying pressure to make sure that Jason Van Dyke is held accountable for the murder of Laquan McDonald, shooting him 16 times in cold blood. Um, so we're out here today to let the courts know and to let everybody inside know that this, the movement is still watching. You know, this is the movement that got Anita Alvarez out of office, that got Gary McCarthy out of office, and now got Rahm Emanuel out of office. I am a victim of police brutality. Yeah, Jasmine Solis, one of the organizers, really laid it out for us. Uh, she told us everything that this movement has changed about Chicago. Uh, you know, bringing down McCarthy, Alvarez, and then Rom. That mm-hmm. announcement came days before, which was, you know, both energizing and also, you know, not enough, right? So there was kind of that give and take of this progress has been made, but, you know, here this here begins a trial that, you know, could end either way. Of course, that was a month ago, and we know how it ended now. And this all started with just getting the dash cam footage, and from there there's just been a kind of like a snowball of, demonstrations it's continued to get bigger and bigger around the city yeah and around the country i mean this really the release of that dash cam video kind of lined up with you know police brutality police murder cases that were being exposed you know in 2015 i mean this started the department of justice investigation that showed that chicago cops are racist the organization the grassroots organization around this particular killing really shed light on that we have proof now i also um there were a whole bunch of events canceled around the city, notices on like high-rise apartments in downtown that everything's like on a, a soft lockdown, like there was supposed to be some sort of, you know, violent response to what would happen. And this entire four-year process and all the demonstrations around it has been nonviolent, and they've been holding each other accountable for that. And so I think that just really, it kind of washed away that stigma of, you know, protests being violent and I mean, overall, what did you what did you gather from City Hall? Yeah, I mean, initially there was a lot of cheering when Van Dyke was convicted. That was quickly followed up with calls for change to keep coming. Uh, the Real Shy had a team of reporters on site, and let's listen in to what they collected from this historic moment. Guilty! Guilty. Guilty. This is what it looks like when we take to the streets yes. and tell them to convict these killer cops. This is what it looks like when we try to dismantle a foundation that was built off of slavery and oppressing the black men and his family. The day after Van Dyke's conviction, Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court. About a week after, Dr. Christine Blasey Ford took the stand and testified that he sexually assaulted her in high school. Overall, I mean, a lot of the reactions, social media, it's still something that's hotly contested and, you know, a little, little demoralizing to to tune into at times. But some people don't have that, you know, they don't have that liberty to just tune in into how this affects them every day. Yeah, I mean, I was watching it the whole day on Thursday. I was in the office trying to do work, watching her testify. And I wish it were black and white, but it's not. There's memory, there's trauma, and everything that kind of, you know, muddies those waters. Um, Of course, I believe her. Like, that goes without saying, but, you know, we have to say it. You know, people in our office told me and, you know, the other women, femmes watching it, like, you know, just turn it off. Turn it off. Um, I couldn't, though, because there's something about seeing her, you know, on the stand talking about this to a room of people who half are listening, half are not. Mm -hmm. 
that was obvious from the beginning. And seeing the way that the Republican senators interacted with Kavanaugh, you like beer, I like beer, <laughs> and barely even looked at Dr. Ford. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was hard to watch. Because the whole Me Too movement, we've seen a lot of people, um, you know, be held accountable for these types of actions. And have, have past ones kind of had the same, this same draw, you think? I don't think so. I mean, I, to me, this felt like reality TV almost. Like, Judge Judy couldn't have done this better. And I don't really know why that, why that was. I think it's a combination of, you know, the Republicans of the right trying to get this guy into the Supreme Court as fast as they can and fighting the Democrats who are, you know, trying to stall this. It's unclear whether on either side anyone was motivated by morality or ethics. So I canceled everything that I was supposed to do on Friday because I wanted to watch the vote, you know, the vote to determine when the vote would be all this Mm -hmm. process and red tape. And I remember that video came out of the two women who stopped Senator Jeff Flake in the elevator who on Friday morning had said he was going to vote yes for Kavanaugh, yes to go forward with the nomination. You know, for five minutes, those women just stood there. They stood where the elevator doors closed. They kept them open. They physically put their bodies in a space where they were not welcome, which we are trained not to do. We are trained to, you know, step off the sidewalk when a man is passing. And they they stopped his route. And, you know, for five minutes, they were going into their own assaults. They were crying. They were saying... You know, tell me that my experience doesn't matter because that is what this vote means. They would say, look at me, and he would just look down, look up for a second and look down. And I don't understand how you can make that vote and not be able to look at who it affects. But that's kind of how our government works now. But yeah, it was very clear from the emotional labor that they had to do. And then the almost backflip he did, but not quite, Mm -hmm. you know, how linked those things were. That yeah, justice is white and justice is male. And that is where we're at. That is, you know, that ultimately they changed the news for a day. We got the FBI investigation. But then, you know, again, that process gets handed off to justice, which the FBI didn't interview Ford. And, yeah, nothing happened. And he was confirmed. And I think by the time he was confirmed, we were all just so exhausted that it didn't even come as a shock. Well, with the... With like we have like the uh, organized demonstrations like surrounding all these topics, but what those two women did was like very you know impromptu and unconventional in a sense. But all it really was was just two regular people walking up to someone who is representing them and having a conversation and asking them like, "Look me in the eye," and that's really all it took to you know have this moment where maybe Flake was kind of wavering which way he would go. And so I think that just kind of speaks to, you know, the power that people can have at like a very minimal level. But yeah, what you're just saying is uh, justice is white and male. We have an election upcoming on November 6th, and there's a vote to retain Judge Matt Coughlin, who he was an assistant state's attorney while police commander John Burge was in Chicago Police Department. Burge has a large history of torturing black people specifically, forcing false conviction or false confessions that lead to wrongful convictions. And Coglin was very complacent throughout. He would wit- he would bribe witnesses, and he was very light on police misconduct while he was in the state. And he's also been uh, very heavy on drug charges that still impact people in Chicago today. And so there's an initiative going on, the Dump Coglin campaign, and they're advocating for everyone to vote no. 
make sure you're registered and go vote on November 6th because there's been a lot of change that's come through these past four years uh, regarding Laquan McDonald. And, you know, hold your representatives accountable. And uh, to end on a happy note, John Burge, a former (laughs) Chicago police commander who tortured over 100 suspects into false confessions, died last month, sparking a surge of social support for victims of his torture. While many people have been locked up for decades, Burge, who was convicted for perjury, served just four years after being released. Uh, He retired to a cozy little home in Florida, the basement of the United States, and I'm sure it was filled with mold. So, yeah, that's where we're at. Feeling good. Feeling good. (laughs) And in a later segment called The Deep Dish, we are going to go into an example of Burge's legacy. Criminal justice reform reporter Maya Horton talked to Luana Lampkins last week. Lampkins was a survivor of Burge's legacy of torture and spent 30 years in prison. But for now, next stop, shout out to the announcements. This stop is Shoutouts and Announcements. Shoutouts and Announcements is a time where we talk about people doing awesome things in Chicago. So let's get started. Shoutout to Windy City Harvest. They have indoors farmers markets across the city located at Chicago Botanic Gardens. Get your fruits and veggies for the winter. Stock up. Uh, We wanted to shout out the CPS Safe Passage Guards who uh, stand on designated routes in neighborhoods across the city, making sure that students have a safe route to and from school. So shout out to them. Shout out to the breathing room space in back of the yards. They're part of the Let Us Breathe Collective. They have Reiki healing, free clothes, and a bunch of cool stuff for the community. Wanted to shout out the Chicago Urban Art Retreat Center. It's a nonprofit on the west side that provides support and positive opportunities for underrepresented people in an environment striving to be multicultural and help people through art. Shout out to Garfield Park Conservatory for their commitment to change lives through the power of nature. Go there for your daily dosage of oneness. And then last but not least, we wanted to shout out the North Lawndale Restorative Justice Court, which instead of applying punitive measures to nonviolent offenders, It reintegrates them back into the community by connecting them with services, including mental health counseling, substance abuse treatment, education, job training, and parenting classes. All right, guys, that's been shout outs and announcements. Next stop is who dat? This stop is Who That. On this month's episode of Who That, we spoke with Karen Bates Rivers, a longtime West Sider and graduate from Oak Park River Forest High School, or OPRF, about how important it is to have school counselors and mentors who care. I wanted to go to OPRF. Once you see something of excellence, you want it. And when you love reading and you want to stay motivated. 
So when a child can't go where they want to go, you vex their spirit. It makes it harder to be who you want to be. So instead of them sending me, I stayed, I stayed out of school. I went to Flowers where my sister went. I'm not going to Austin. It, 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 I, didn't, I didn't see nothing good up in there, but it was a neighborhood school. So I walked up to Flowers and they said, you can't come in here because your mother has to bring you in here. And I stayed out of school for like two days. I ain't going to Austin. So when they, my mama finally found out I wasn't in school, I was supposed to go to the branch, but they sent me to the high school. Because in your freshman year, you go to the branch. Mm -hmm. So uh, the blessing was, I could have said I don't want to go to school, but I stuck it out. And the uh, counselors that was there saw me, and her name was Miss Walton. And if you look at my yearbook, <laughs> She said, come here. I said, what's your name? I said, Karen Rivers. She said, what's wrong? I said, I don't like this school. She said, you know what I'm going to do for you? You're going to be my assistant. I'm going to pay you to file my file, wash my, my little cup out. I said, fine. So what I like about the, the school system, no matter even if you're in a school you don't like, there's going to be someone there to help you through. And that's what Austin did for me. Karen Bates Rivers is a member of CARA, an organization that helps survivors of domestic abuse and helped her finish her physical education degree. She is currently teaching PE at a local high school on the west side. Doors closing. UIC Halstead is next. Doors open on the left at UIC Halstead. Please be considerate when talking on your phone or listening to electronic devices so as not to disturb other customers. This stop is The Deep Dish. Welcome to The Deep Dish. I'm Maya Horton. I'm here with Trevor Squire and Julia Monsheen to discuss more in depth a story we have been working on about Luana Lampkins. Lampkins was one of many who was wrongfully convicted under John Burge's tenure with the Chicago Police Department. His death on September 19th has resurfaced his legacy of torture, which led us to Luana, who spent 30 years in prison for a crime that another man confessed to. I was tortured. The fact that they use my children, and like I said, there's nothing a mother won't do when it comes to her children. When I was in the district, they took my children in interrogation. My children weren't allowed to use the bathroom, no food, no water. Just threats to me to say that I did something that I did not do. What really struck me about Luana's story, I think initially, was how her children were used against her in interrogation, how they were you know, literally in the same station and being held without her consent. You know, they were minors. And that's a story that we don't hear a lot because in the predominant media coverage of false convictions, we generally see male faces, generally, you know, black and brown male faces. We don't hear about how children are weaponized against their mothers and, you know, held hostage almost to get a conviction or for intimidation tactics, which Luana experienced. Um, 
And that was a perspective that I really hadn't even thought about. You know, it's kind of, it, it feels like a new level of injustice to hold someone's children against them. Overall, Luana's is a story that you don't hear so often. So I was wondering, how did you come to meet her and learn, you know, just enough to pursue this interview? Um, so Luana is an artist. She sells her art on the streets of Wicker and Logan. I think that actually a lot of people might be familiar with who she is if they saw a picture of her. Uh, so I, I ran into her and I spoke with her and a friend of mine um, later told me after we had bought a piece of art that uh, told me about her story and they had been a student at DePaul and she was speaking there about her incarceration and her wrongful conviction and um, then I was like oh well goodness and and then I looked more into it I found out that she, it was related to John Burge I found just learned more about her story and the, the, the intricacies of it and so I decided to contact her and I got in contact with her through her son who goes by Ghetto Art there's so much pain, there's so much confusion, so much things that's happening in the world. And, you know, um, I never, I've always remembered when my um, grandmother would always say to encourage me, especially when I was a child growing up with a mother in prison and the father is absent. She's always saying, no matter what, God loves you and somebody in the world has it worse than you. You know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's tough because when you, you know, come into a world and you know, the family is broken. Um, the judicial system has, you know, once again proved, you know, to break families, you know, in, in, in unjustly. And um, my biggest, 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 uh, I want to say blessing in my life was my positivity art and um, the happiest day was when I met my mom coming out of prison part of us getting to know each other better and um, getting an understanding and the healing process I mean aside from selling art like what are they normally doing just kind of like performing on the streets or so she just sells her art um, which is typically would be described as prison art, I feel, to most people. She even describes it that way. Um, like, made with markers, there's drawings, they're comedic. Um, and she just has a personality. She just tries to connect with most people on the street, even when she's not um, selling anything. You saw, we wa- we followed her that day, and she was like, oh, you're, oh, I love your hair, girl. It reminds me of when I was a child. Like, she said stuff like that. Yeah, uh, her son, he is more of a performance artist, and he's also a visual artist, too, but you will see him, and she describes it as serenading, which she does. Which he does. He'll be singing throughout the streets of Wicker. He'll do comedy routines. One time, I think I saw him, like, doing sort of like a Tai Chi, like, on the six corners, like, um, but he was an actor, and he was living in Las Vegas, and was a street performer. He came here after his mom was released, and uh, when he met with her, because he was one when she was first arrested, and when she was locked up, um, he was one years old, he was 30 when he was, when she got out, 
And then he was reconnecting with her, asking her how, what she did to get by in prison. And she, she actually talked with us about that a lot. But one of the things was her selling her drawings um, to get commissary and all that different all that different stuff and respect and friendship actually. And uh, so he saw that his mom was a visual artist and saw that she had that talent. And then he was like, well, you can use this and you can use this to make money and to, and cause she was under the impression that nobody would want this outside of prison. What were you expecting going into the interview with her? When I first went into the interview, I met her late at night um, when she was about to go sell her work. Um, and I, I followed her for a little while. I took some pictures. I already had an idea of the personality that she had, um, which is one that is very, uh, like Julia was saying, she's like a mover and shaker. She was, she, she was very, she was someone that I was kind of concerned about interviewing because I felt that she would kind of take it somewhere away from me and I know I needed to be in control of the situation especially because it's such a a large topic to cover as someone who's like a newer journalist um do you want to talk a little bit about her personality Julia yeah I was struck by how you know this is a woman with an agenda she has this story and she knows every twist and turn she knows exactly how it affects her audience and there is something very performative almost about interviewing Luana because she is an operative. She knows what she wants. She knows that her story has been used, that people have asked her about it, that they, you know, they like her art. They'll give her like five bucks for it. They'll keep walking. She's trying to leverage her history, which is filled with trauma and disappointment and abuse and torture. And she is leveraging it because she wants justice. Her family has had many interactions with police um, in Minnesota, in Chicago. So it was it's emotional hearing her story and then also seeing how it affects her daughter who is in prison now as well in, in Minnesota. Uh, it just you really get to see how the, the generational impacts of taking a mother away from her children and have being fatherless as well. And w- what do you do when, when your children are just raised in this system? Like, what? what is this system really raising our children, you know? It felt like within the day that we spent with Luana, where we started at her apartment, and we were there for hours. You know, she wanted money from us to go buy some food. She wanted cigarettes. She wanted to fix her hair. She wanted us to film her hair, but not the secret of, you know, how she gets her <laughs> hair to look the way it does. Um, wanted, she wanted us to stay with her and go see her son. She ended up staying back and we went to see him, but it was, you know, we were there for eight hours shooting. And within that day, it felt like we we had kind of traveled through as visitors, as journalists, as reporters. We'd seen this cycle of violence, cycle of abuse. We were seeing the effects of what happens when families are destroyed by the police. I was arrested in 1982. I was 24 years old. And I had three children. My daughter was seven years old, and I was homeless. I came from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. That's where I was born and raised. When I got here, I didn't have a place to stay. So my daughter, um, sister, do you have a light, please? I brought you. 
Sorry, I get a nervous. I need to feel like I need to smoke right now. Which I, probably, I know I need to quit. I'm at that age. I need to stop. Oh, look at that. That was a sign. You should quit. I've been trying to quit for like a year, but it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. We're going to get this. We're going to get through this. It's okay. It's going to be okay. That's in the deep dish. Next stop, girl on the train. This stop is Girl on a Train. We are focusing on sexual harassment and harassment towards women in public spaces in general due to the recent appointment of now Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. This is an ongoing discussion that affects men and women all over the world. Well, he was playing with fire and he almost caught my hair on fire. And these guys like threatened him and told him don't have a touch me. So now I do use protection. Gwen was saying that there was this guy on the train who was playing with fire, and he almost caught her hair on fire. It's unfortunate that we have to deal with stuff like that in general. And it leads to the question, what is the face of harassment? What was the reason? What was the cause? But also, like, it takes on many different shapes and forms. It doesn't even just have to be a sexual thing. It's a power thing. Why does this guy have fire in an <laughs> open space? But at least there was someone that was trying to help, you know, because so, a lot of people don't even do that. It's bad enough that we have to experience harassment, but it's even worse when we can't react to these situations because it's like, am I putting myself in more danger? And so I'd rather just put my head down and pretend it didn't happen, and that kind of leads to... I guess, questions about, like, did it really happen? Was I just overreacting? And I think that issue of, like, doubting what happened and doubting yourself and the reality that you just experienced is something that a lot of women can relate to. Harassment, it's sometimes it's not just about gender. It's, like, an intersection of different issues. I had people come up to me and said a lot of racial slurs just because ethnically, I, I like, I'm from Asia, so I think that is the most intensive experience I've had, just people blurring out words that are inappropriate and offensive. So that's basically her experience. But sometimes when I was on the train, I feel like someone was like staring at me. So I'm not sure whether I'm doing something wrong, doubting myself, and also think about that. Um, maybe it's because I'm a, I'm a woman, and maybe uh, because I'm I look like Asian, it makes the situation worse. It's been a recurring theme with what we're saying and, and doubting yourself. Um, if it's as prevalent amongst men as it is women, like, is it something that we have been trained to do now, especially in light of what happened with the appointment of Brett Kavanaugh and seeing someone speak up and seeing someone that was of highest stature in the community, a doctor, say that she was assaulted and people, yes, doubting her and wanting to discredit her, but then also unfortunately not even if if, the, if they did believe her you know not really necessarily caring um and it just makes me wonder 
is it something that I've been trained to do and to to think, oh, well, is it that it's not that bad? It, it can't have been that bad. I'm just blowing it up because I'm just a woman. For me, the biggest reason why I say something is because it's been normalized. And I think that's what we need to disrupt is this normalization of these little tiny microaggressions being kind of swept under the rug. You know, even if I think about the last week, my existence just trying to walk down the street and, and be in this world is marked by all of these tiny little microaggressions, but they add up to this message of, you know, you don't matter and you have less power than, than other people do. And so in light of this Kavanaugh thing and, and those kinds of uh, normalized behaviors being institutionalized now, I think it's even more important for us to kind of speak up at the, the micro level and kind of break that normalization. You just walk with an awareness. My mom always told me, like, look behind your back. Don't carry too many things. Um, don't look lost. Don't be on your phone. Um, I do have a self-defense keychain uh, and a taser. I was doing spray, um, pepper spray for a while. That was easily 10 different things that I am assured most men don't even think about on a weekly, monthly, even yearly basis. And that's something that we think about every minute of every day. There are not a lot of street lights where I live. So I use um, the flashlight from my phone and just people look at me crazy. There were these uh, two uh, young boys. I was just, you know, shining my light, you know, just to light up the area so I can see. And they just looked at me like, girl, what are you doing? I'm like, like, your ass look like a little kid with that flashlight. Like, and I just kept walking. And then it was funny because immediately after that, an older woman who saw me, she was like, you keep that on you. Like, it's dangerous out here. Like, please be safe. After hearing that clip, just very surprised that that's how her brother refers to her uh, when his, his sister is trying to keep herself safe. Um, so that that to me was just really alarming, actually. Yeah, I think it just goes to show that that kind of stuff is just not on men's radar at all. And it seems extra and it seems maybe paranoid to them. Uh, but for us, it's literally life and death. So a lady um, I met on the red lights, she actually told me that she basically avoid, uh, avoids like taking the public transportation. She would prefer a car. And if she has to take like train, she would do that like before 9 p.m. And after that, she will prefer driving or just like order a Lyft or Uber. Um, I've heard stories of women in Ubers and Lyfts being harassed or being hit on when they've clearly said, no, I don't want to give you my number. Like in the Philippines, um, where I'm from, there are just constant reports about Uber drivers um, harassing passengers and even raping them. It's very common that every time there's a news about sexual harassment on the public transportation, people always like blame the, the girls, the ladies. They feel like, oh, maybe it's just the way you dressed. You just, I mean, you wear like short skirts. That's how you like attract these like predators. But actually, it's not that case. Sorry, I'm just going to call it out. There's an issue in the male community and it needs to be addressed and be, and these small assaults need to be addressed <laughs> because otherwise it's it just allows them to think that it's okay for them to continue
with everything that's going on, we shouldn't just be passive passengers to the sexual harassment. Um, we should be more active in just using our voices and really just standing together to try to combat all of this. Also, we would just love to dedicate this segment to just anyone around the world who's experienced sexual harassment, people who've told their stories, who may feel like they can't tell their stories. We hear you. We acknowledge you. And that's including trans women. Yes. All femmes. Mm -hmm. This has been Girl on the Train, and next stop is One Minute of Love. This stop is One Minute of Love. This stop is One Minute of Love. In order to connect with someone, you need more than news. Here's a little bit of love. This week on One Minute of Love, we're featuring uh, local tap dancer Time Bricky with an original freestyle by Musa Reeves. Look, uh. I run the game, you more like a role player If more money bring more problems Then more success bring more haters uh, I father your style, you go through more phases Just like a doctor that's on a vacation I got no patience, look If it was 99, I'd probably sign the death judge Unanimous decision when they Saying who next up I body your favorite rapper, tell them to rest up I'm worth an arm and a leg, so it's clear Who I'm ahead of, people chirping Them goofies, kiss my ass Y'all people be wanting shortcuts, but y'all couldn't bypass The new people y'all listening Two, them guys trash, even their rappers was paying tuition. They couldn't buy class. I'm the flyers, no turpin' in Serena when I'm serving shit. Rappers be getting on, but I swear they ain't deserving it. My vision only focused on bagging cream. While people got more issues than the weekly magazine is Musa. Doors open on the left at Western. Your attention, please. Your venture card may be expiring soon, so make sure your rides don't. Register your venture card online, and you'll receive a new card in the mail for free prior to expiration. Learn more at VentureChicago.com. This is a final stop as far as this podcast goes. The Real Shy is a program under Free Spirit Media, which provides media arts education to young people on both west and south sides of Chicago. We would like to thank our guests, Time Bricky, Musa Reeves, and Luana Lampkins. We will also like to thank Daniel Kisslinger and Damon Williams from Ergo, who work with us to produce the show. A special thanks to Cards Against Humanity for sharing their studio with us as well. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at The Real Shy FSM. Until next time, thanks for riding with The Real Shy. Doors closing. Thank you for riding the CTA Blue Line. So you're listening to Ergo, right? But you want Ergo and all your other podcasts to sound good. That's why you should be listening on Overcast. Overcast is a better podcast app than whatever you're using right now, unless it's Overcast. Get Overcast for free on the App Store.